welcome to Biota. I'm Sarah Sanders. And I'm Phil Gibson. Today we're joined in the studio by Dr. James Hung, a professor at the University of Oklahoma. We are so excited to have you here, and we'd like to thank you for just coming in and talking to us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I saw on your website that you're a pollination ecologist. Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, so it's actually a pretty, pretty broad field. Um, pollination ecologists work on um, anything from pollinator biology to the ecosystem function of pollinations that's delivered to natural and agricultural plant populations. Some of these interactions involve bees, and I feel like we all have a pretty general concept of what bees are, or we might think that we do, but can you tell us exactly what a bee is? Yeah, that's a great question, because as you said, people have a pretty set idea of what a bee looks like, but there are at least 20,000 bee species in the world, and most of them live lives that are quite unlike the European or Western honeybee that we all know so well. So. Um, Taxonomically defined, bees are a clade of vegetarian wasps that have branched hairs on their bodies and have switched from a diet of insect and arachnid prey to pollen and nectar. So bees are, technically speaking, wasps, and you can tell them apart by going very, very, very close to them and looking for branches on their body hairs. That's what a bee is. Can you tell us why they're important? Yeah, so bees are very, very important in our ecosystem because they are some of the most important uh, pollinator species in the world. And that is because, like other animals that pollinate, bees rely on resources given out by flowers for their survival. But unlike most of these other groups, like hummingbirds and butterflies and moths and beetles and bats, bees rely on resources given by flowers over their entire life cycle. So the adults use nectar to fuel their energetic activities, like these other pollinators I talked about, but the larvae persist almost entirely on the pollen and nectar that the adults collect for them and bring back to the nest. Besides pollination services, are there any other benefits that bees provide us with? You know, I think just pollination services is a pretty big deal. Um, <laughs> The fact that, you know, something like 85% of plant species in the world are reliant on animal pollinators to some extent, and bees being the primary pollinators in many, many ecosystems, especially the temperate ecosystems where a lot of the world's landmass lies. So the fact that, you know, bees help the foundational organisms in these terrestrial ecosystems to persist indefinitely, I think that's a big deal. Bees are also, at least the honeybee that you know, we have come to know so well is a great model organism for studying biology and um, social organization and cognition. And that same species is being used for medicine as well. So their venom is used for many different kinds of medicinal research. And also because honeybees collect both pollen and nectar, there are a lot of folks out there with, with uh, pollen allergies. It seems that for at least some of them, eating the honey that these bees collected from their local environment that contained traces of this pollen, it allows their body to recognize these pollen grains as a source of food rather than a foreign invader, and it, it could alleviate um, allergic symptoms. So yeah, many different uses for bees. So how long have bees been around? When did they evolve? So molecular systematics is constantly being updated, but the most recent numbers I've read is somewhere in the 100 to 130 million year range. The best evidence is currently pointing to them having evolved from ancestors that look a lot like thrips, 
hunting wasps. And that makes a lot of sense. So the thrips hunting wasps are these tiny, tiny little wasps, no, no bigger than some of the you know, small or medium-sized ants. And they eat these tiny little insects called thrips that generally live on leaves or in flowers. And thrips eat leaf tissue, and many species seem to also eat pollen. So it makes a lot of sense that an ancestral taxon that messed around in flowers a lot, hunting these little thrips that have eaten a lot of pollen, could make the jump to themselves just collecting pollen instead of having to find these thrips in the flowers. Going back a little bit, you said that bees are our main pollinator. Do all bee species act as pollinators? And are some better at pollinating than others? Yeah, so I would say that all bee species have the potential to act as pollinators because as adults, all bee species need nectar to fuel their flight which they get from flowers. And as far as I know, the females of all bee species need to ingest at least some level of pollen to generate their eggs. So that means that bees are going to be flying around, um, at least spending a portion of their adult lives from flower to flower, drinking nectar to fuel their energetic activities. So all bees, as well as the, the vast majority of wasps and flies that rely on nectar for their energetic needs can serve as pollinators. Now, like you said, some bee species are definitely better pollinators than others. And uh, how good a bee species is as a pollinator often has something to do with how big they are, how fluffy they are, how much demand they have at the individual and at the colony level for uh, these resources that are found in flowers. So, for example, a parasitic species that enters the nest of a different species and deposits her eggs in there instead of collecting balls of pollen on her own to feed to her own offspring will spend a lot less time in flowers compared to a species that requires large amounts of pollen to create pollen balls to feed to feed to her offspring. I've read that there's growing evidence that the number of bee populations is declining. Why are bees in danger? What are we doing both directly and indirectly to affect them? Yeah, so bees are like any other wild insect in that they depend on suitable habitat and the resources in the habitat being intact to support their populations. So anything we're doing to mess with the integrity of the habitat could potentially harm bee populations. So there's kind of this alarmist, you know, insect apocalypse thing going on in the media. To some extent, there are some widespread impacts of human activities on pretty much all terrestrial habitats in the world. But I don't think we yet have evidence that all bee populations everywhere are under existential threat. So, for example, here in Oklahoma, if you go out to a nice prairie remnant, you will still see lots and lots of native bee species just doing their thing. But the loss of habitat and the loss of habitat integrity, when you have those processes going on in a landscape, you will lose plant species and the bee species that pollinate them and that rely on them for their food resources. And climate change is another important stressor for bees. Many bee species have very close associations with the plants that they rely on and they, that they pollinate. And they're called pollen specialists. So, for example, there are bee species that only will forage for cactus pollen to provision their offspring. And therefore, they can only persist where there are healthy cactus populations. There are bees that only forage on willow, that only forage on gilias, on cryptanthas, and so on. Um, many plant species out there have pollen specialist bees. And that means that these bees are only active during the times of the year when these plant species are blooming. And when you have climate change changing arrival dates of spring or summer or fall, 
and changing rainfall patterns, bees and the blooming of plants can become desynchronized from each other, such that plants may bloom and have no bees or at least no specialist bees out there to pollinate them. And specialist bees could possibly emerge from their dormancy and find that the plant species that they rely on have either already bloomed or haven't come into bloom yet. So climate change and uh, its impacts could really do a number on the bees, even in relatively intact habitat where you don't see strong evidence of human modification of these landscapes. And then another factor that has been in the media uh, more recently is environmental pollution, largely, at least in the U.S., in the form of agricultural pesticides being sprayed over large areas of the landscape. And these pesticides can leach into the groundwater and end up in uh, natural habitats nearby. They can persist sometimes in the environment for long periods of time. And these are also threats to bees that are living in agriculturalized landscapes. Something I've heard about along those lines is that as agriculture is trying to use different types of GMOs, that while the bees are not a direct target of that toxin, they may have indirect effects on them. Do you see that as a possible threat? Yeah, absolutely. So plants that have either been genetically engineered to express toxins or those that have been soaked in neonicotinoids that are systemic, that basically leach into the tissue of plants, as long as these chemicals are able to leach into the pollen and nectar, they could be potentially harmful to bees. So I actually did a postdoc uh, looking at this effect in cucurbit agroecosystems in the Midwest, and we found that when growers use these neonicotinoid-treated seeds, these effects persist all the way until when the pumpkins or squashes or cucumbers or melons start to develop flowers. And we can find traces of these insecticide chemicals in the pollen and the nectar. Would you say that bee species are being equally or almost equally affected by these three factors? Or are some being way more heavily impacted? That's a great question because bee species, just like any other organism group, range super widely in how common and how rare they are. There are species that exist naturally across continents. So there are some species of Arctic bumblebees that are found in the Eurasian Arctic and the North American Arctic. And then there are species with range sizes that are about the size of the state of Iowa, for example. Some of our kind of Southern California endemic. We also have Hawaiian endemics that are only found on the Hawaiian islands. So if you look at it from one angle, these really widespread species can have very large parts of their range be impacted by uh, agriculturalization or urbanization or deforestation. And you can see large reductions in their range size compared to their formal range occupancy. Whereas some of these very endemic bees may be in some desert in Arizona or Southern California, their habitats may be largely intact but the moment you start messing with that habitat, the entire species may become extinct. So how threatened different bee species are, relatively speaking, I think depends on what metric you use. But scientists are definitely seeing patterns where some species are showing steep declines, where other species seem to actually even be increasing their range. So one of the challenges to pollinator biologists who work in species conservation then is to figure out which species are in decline what are causing these declines and what makes these species that are declining different from species that are stable or even increasing. And with this kind of information, how do we reverse this process so that we can conserve as many species as possible? 
Do you think by focusing conservation efforts on one bee species can sort of help with the conservation of other species? Yeah. So I had heard a talk at a conference where a scientist was describing this local scale restoration effort as equal opportunity gardens because pollinator garden is a kind of thing that people are starting to talk about a lot. You know, they'll say, oh, you know, let's put a pollinator garden here to help the pollinators. And he said, well, actually, when you put these things in and you create natural habitat with native plants, it's not just the pollinators. They're just the ones that you can see well because they're in the flowers and humans are looking at flowers all the time. But you're getting herbivores, you're getting predators and parasitoids, you're helping the below ground processes as well. So when you plant these swaths of native vegetation under the assumption that you're going to help you know, certain groups of pollinators, generally speaking, if you're creating or amending habitat, you're going to be helping more than just one group of pollinators. But I think one issue at least with the way that the U.S. Endangered Species Act goes about things is that it's a species-centric approach, right? You have single species that are listed as endangered, and then there's all this legislation around what you can and cannot do with land that, that has or may have this species. And that could cause practitioners to, I think, focus a little too narrowly on just those habitats that are known to host a very specific species and only to enact habitat conservation strategies that are known to affect that species and may have potentially minimal impacts on the other species that maybe we just don't have enough data yet to show that they are also threatened. So I think in general, practices that will allow us to preserve the largest amount of good, intact, and continuous unfragmented habitat is going to be the way to go in terms of trying to conserve as many bee species as possible. And this is going to help not just the bees, but all the organisms that live in these habitats. With recent reports showing that numbers of pollinators in general are declining, could we not just introduce more bees in an area with fewer pollinators to fix that? Well, that's what people are doing in agroecosystems. So if we go back and look at historical photos of how apple orchards are done, you'll see that, you know, it's rows of trees, but with lots of native shrubbery and herbaceous blooming plants in the understory. It kind of looks like a messy affair compared to the modern apple orchard where, you know, you have very shortcut grass, no weeds, no shrubs. It's just rows and rows and rows and rows of apple trees that are all the same height, that are all the same cultivar. And back then, the landscape could support tons and tons of native pollinators. And you really wouldn't need to bring in any commercial honeybees or bumblebees to help with pollination. I mean, even today, many of those apple orchards that are not super intensely managed will support a lot of native pollinators that can probably do most of the pollination without any introduced honeybees. But there are now crop systems where if you don't introduce commercial honeybee colonies or bumblebee colonies, you won't have enough pollination to maximize your fruit yield. And that's why people are bringing them in. Now, when it comes to natural areas, I haven't really heard of any success stories of people introducing bees back into an area or into an area that they perceive as being pollination deficient. Native bees are pretty finicky. Uh, the majority of species nest solitarily in tunnels underground that each female bee excavates. So 
Like, how do you go about transplanting bee populations in this case? I think you would either have to move large amounts of soil with bee nests in them, or you have to capture these bees as they emerge from their natal nests before they start making new tunnels and put them in somewhere where they are happy to settle down. So I think conservation of bee populations and maybe restoring native pollinator populations probably requires more the process of natural recolonization as the habitat that you are concerned about restores itself to a more intact state for supporting native organisms that can then kind of move in from the surrounding landscape. You keep saying native bees, and I just want to explore one thing. So the honeybee that we think of, that we find everywhere in the clover patches in our backyards, those aren't native, are they? Those are not native, yeah. They were brought over by the pioneers basically as a livestock. So it's interesting and unfortunate, I think, that they have escaped our management and have basically become the most dominant pollinator in many of our landscapes. I actually did a meta-analysis during my graduate study days and found that the honeybee is the most widespread pollinator species in the entire world. They were found in something like two-thirds of all habitats where scientists have uh, tried to document plant-pollinator interactions. And this is entirely because of humans bringing in honeybee colonies for food production and for pollination purposes. So it's actually very interesting now that, you know, people all over the world see honeybees as such a familiar insect, but relatively few people in the general public know that outside of their native range in Western Europe and, and most of Africa, that this is an introduced insect. Have these introduced honeybees negatively impacted native bee species? We know that they can. So we still lack convincing scientific evidence throughout much of the world about the impacts of introduced honeybees on native bees. But we do have some studies out there that show that when honeybees are abundant, native bees can be less successful in their foraging and therefore produce fewer offspring. We have some evidence that when honeybees are abundant, they can recruit to the most rewarding food resources, so the most um, abundant blooming plants out there, and push native bees off those plants just by their sheer volume. And the native bees will go to that plant and be like, wow, there's like nothing left for us. And they'll go to a less preferred food resource that, you know, may be less beneficial for their own survival and reproduction. So Honeybees are definitely having some sort of impact, especially in places where they have become very abundant. And I think people are realizing that more and more. And now there is actually discussion even among legislators about, you know, how much to allow honeybee keepers to put honeybee colonies during their migratory transit on conservation lands where there may be sensitive plant and bee populations. I frequently hear people talking about saving the bees. I see lots of shirts, bags, hats, you know, all with that same message. What can people actually be doing to save the bees? Well, I think the first step is to realize that a lot of people are saving the wrong bees. So if I have a t-shirt that says, save the mountain lions, you know that this is talking about a conservation issue. But if I have a shirt that says, save the beef cattle, you would not mistake me as a conservation biologist. You would see that I'm an animal rights activist. And saving the honeybees is an animal rights issue. Honeybees are a livestock that we humans brought to this continent. And even though large populations have escaped our management, I think the, the populations that people care about are under the management of beekeepers 
And it's true that we have not been, we have not always been the best at managing these vast populations of organisms that we have harvested from the wild and kept in these little boxes and moved around. You, you know, and you'll have seen in the news that there are many years where beekeepers were losing their colonies left and right. There's colony collapse. You know, there's a lot of over, overwintering deaths. And these are real issues. These are real animal welfare issues and agricultural livestock management issues that we need to contend with. But the problem right now is that people have conflated this animal rights and animal husbandry issue with a natural biodiversity conservation issue. And I think, you know, going back to the mountain lion versus beef cattle um, analogy, that seems kind of a ridiculous parallel to draw. But that's basically what's happening is that um, there's so much publicity around the plight of the managed honeybee. And because honeybees are such a familiar organism and people see them everywhere in their parks and their clover patches in their backyards, people think that this, you know, bees are dying everywhere and we need to do all we can to save the honeybees and, you know, have more rooftop hives and support the beekeeping industry. Whereas what we really need to be doing is conserving habitat. And we need to be changing policy about how land can be developed so that we can make sure to conserve enough habitat to keep our native bees happy. And also regulating what kinds of chemicals and how much of it we can be allowed to put into the environment so that we don't keep exacerbating this you know, impending climate crisis. Besides policy change, is there something that people can do at the individual level yeah, absolutely. I think if you if you have any real estate that you can mess with, planting native plants is always a good idea. I live in a brand new development where the entire block was just scraped dirt until they built the houses. And I put in some native sunflowers in my yard. My neighbors put in uh, other native plants. And we saw several different species of native bees that have dispersed into our kind of scorched earth neighborhood. So depending on your surrounding landscape, if you have some remnant natural habitat left, chances are that if you grow native plants, that native bees can find their way there and they can use the resources in your yard as a resource um, for their continued persistence. Minimizing pesticide inputs, you know, not putting pre-emergent treatments in your yard, that could also be helpful. And then actually one thing that I've been trying to publicize more is community science participation in conservation. So are either of you familiar with the app iNaturalist? Yeah. I'm not. Tell us some more about that. So iNaturalist is this community science platform. I guess you could you could call it a uh, social media platform where anybody can go out, photograph organisms in their native habitat, and upload them to this online image database. And anybody who thinks they know the identity of the organism can provide identification uh, on the photos that you uploaded. And the site makes it so that you have to provide the date that you collect uh, that you got this photo from and the lo- approximate location. So what has resulted then is this enormous database of where people are encountering different kinds of organisms. And we are just getting to the point where there are enough bee data points now on iNaturalist. And also bee taxonomists have gotten good enough at identifying bees to the species or at least to the genus level from these photos that we're starting to be able to use these data for conservation. So now the thing I I brought up earlier about, you know, policy, um, these very kind of top-down processes. As you know, these processes are oftentimes very, very slow, and regulating agencies that make decisions 
are very hesitant to change anything that they do unless they have very, very clear evidence that it is absolutely necessary for them to take action. And the fact is that we lack data about most of the organisms out there, including those that are, that are probably being imminently faced with existential threat. So the more data we can have out there that support this, this kind of conservation policy, the faster we can generate enough of an evidence base to present to lawmakers and policymakers to say, hey, look, you know, we have data that XYZ species of bees are pretty stable, but, you know, ABC bee species are really, really in trouble because whereas, you know, 10 years ago they were found in all these different places in the last two years, you know, they really have not been seen, even though these other bee species continue to be documented by community scientists throughout the states. What are you currently studying? So currently, as a biologist with the Oklahoma Natural Heritage Inventory, uh, my state mandate is to go out and document pollinator biodiversity throughout our state and to basically get a sense of what diversity looks like in our state, cataloging our biological resources, basically. So I spend a lot of time in the field whenever bees are in flight. And bees are flying in Oklahoma, I think, from, from February all the way to December. So that's a pretty long bee flight season. I'm not out in the field every day, but I'm out as often as I can make it. Um, so that's kind of one, one arm of the research in my lab is to go out and document bee biodiversity. I'm also continuing to do pollination work. Uh, I recently had a, had a team of students set up this quantum dot technology that was recently pioneered by a lab in South Africa where you take these tiny little quantum dots that are suspended in hexane and you imbue live pollen grains with this substance where these pollen grains then become fluorescent under ultraviolet light. And you can watch how bees take these now fluorescent pollen grains from one flower and deposit it into a different flower. So I'm still working as much as I can with these kind of basic questions of how bees are performing these pollination services and how the different bee species perform differently from one another. What's the future of this field look like to you? Do you see a lot of advancement, a lot of growth? That's a great question. So recently, the hot thing that people are doing is looking at the microbiomes of bees. So as we humans have recognized that our gut microbiomes and skin microbiomes, basically all the different symbiotic microbes are instrumental to our health, people are realizing that that's the case for bees as well. And there are beneficial microbes and there are also pathogenic microbes. And how these different microbes are changing as we impact the landscape and as we impact the climate, there are a lot of questions yet to be answered. And with great molecular tools now at, you know, basically everybody's disposal, there are a lot of people now looking kind of now at, at this kind of level of interaction. So before, you know, we only looked at interactions between bees and flowers. Now we've added another kind of trophic level to this discussion. And then another interesting topic is just looking at very, very large data sets. Um, so the iNaturalist data set I was talking about earlier feeds into these big, big data sets about bee distribution all over the world. And now with um, advancements in uh, species distribution modeling, environmental niche modeling, we can do a lot more in terms of understanding where bee diversity is and where bee diversity is most under threat. That brings us to the end of our interview with Dr. James Hung from the University of Oklahoma. We'd like to thank him again for his time and all the information he shared with us. 
In this episode, we discussed a lot of valuable information about some very important pollinators. First, we learned that there are over 20,000 different bee species, and many of these do not act like or resemble the western honeybees that we're familiar with. Next, we learned that bees are facing a number of anthropogenic changes in the environment that are negatively impacting them, such as habitat loss, climate change, and the use of pesticides and herbicides. We also discussed the fact that the honeybee species that we're so familiar with in the U.S. and many other areas of the world and think of as native species really aren't native to these places. The western honeybee is an introduced species that has tremendous agricultural importance, but it also has the potential to negatively impact native bee species. With this in mind, we have to realize that the idea of saving the bees is a really complex idea. While it is important to protect western honeybees for the agricultural pollination services they provide and that we're dependent on, they are in many ways more of a livestock species than a wild native bee. And of course, anything like disease or pesticide use that harms their populations is something we should be aware of and concerned about. But when we think about saving the bees, what we really need to consider is how we can protect native bee species. When we shift the conversation to the ways we can protect native bees, then we can start to think about not only policy changes at a large scale, but also think about things at the more individual level, like planting native plants and participating in community science that can directly help the native bee species in your area. If you want to participate in the kind of community science Dr. Hung was talking about, iNaturalist is a free app for anyone to use and is a joint initiative of the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society. Finally, we talked about a subject that has come up in several recent episodes, the microbiome. Dr. Hung mentioned the potential value of microbiome studies in the conservation and study of bees and how this technique may be a very promising tool for the future. So that wraps this episode up. Until next time, I'm Phil Gibson. And I'm Sarah Sanders. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day. Don't get stung by any bees and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.